All right, we left off talking about the Puritans. Maybe it would be helpful just to quickly look again at the timeline. Really what we're doing at this point is we're connecting the Reformation uh, to the Puritan movement and from the Puritan movement to American Christianity because the Puritans really represent Reformation teaching and theology coming across the Atlantic from England to New England and our own conservative evangelical heritage goes back through the Puritans when we're talking about American Christianity and specifically the Christianity of the United States of America. Though at this point, of course, the New World, uh, there is no United States until 1776. And so we will spend some time talking about colonial American Christianity before we get actually to the birth of the United States. It's actually kind of interesting even when you think about the perspective of 2,000 years of church history. It's taken us already a semester and a half to get to this point, and we haven't even gotten to the birth of the United States yet. We tend to think, at least as American citizens, we tend to think of the U.S. history as being a really long time. The reality is, in the greater scope of church history or world history, it's really just a blip on the radar. But we'll get there. We just haven't gotten there quite yet. The Reformation itself, of course, was the inevitable result of the Word of God being translated into the language that people could understand, and then the Spirit of God taking His Word, convicting people's hearts, and using that truth to transform them one individual at a time. And as millions of hearts were transformed, entire nations, entire continents were transformed by the Gospel being recovered. Reformation is nothing new. It is the recovery of something old. And that commitment then to sola scriptura, to the lordship of Christ, to the authority of his word, and then to the biblical gospel shapes this section of church history, Reformation and post-Reformation church history. There was in England, of course, a Reformation, but it was a Reformation of convenience rather than conviction because Henry VIII wanted a divorce. We talked about all of that. But under Bloody Mary, his oldest daughter, we had many English Protestants who were forced to flee from England. They came to Europe where they were influenced by the European, the mainland European reformers like Calvin and Bootser and others. They develop those same convictions when they go back to England. They come back with those reformed convictions in their hearts and they want to see England fully reformed. They want to see it reformed in the same way as those cities that they had seen on the continent of Europe. When Elizabeth comes to the throne, though, Elizabeth is more interested in finding sort of a mediating middle ground, a middle way, one in which the king or the queen is at the top of this Episcopal structure of church government, one in which there is still kind of the vestiges of high church, almost pseudo-Catholic liturgy, and yet one in which there is an element of Reformed theology. And this hybrid of kind of Protestant and high church and Episcopalian ideals combines to become what we call the Anglican Church, the Church of England. But the Puritans are continually seeking to reform the Church of England. 
and that's why they're called the Puritans. They want to purify the Church of England. They represent the conservative Christian contingent in England during this 150-year period of time. And under Elizabeth, they're a bit frustrated. Then under James, they begin to even be persecuted. The dissenters, those who were the separatists, they leave and found Plymouth Colony in New England on the Mayflower. We talked about all of that. Others stay, and when Charles I comes to the throne, they find the situation completely unbearable. 30,000 leave in the Great Migration and come to the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the rest stay. They side with Parliament in the English Civil War and then suddenly for about 10 years in the 1650s we have the Puritans in control under Oliver Cromwell. And we already discussed all of the implications of that. Of course one great thing that comes out of that period of time is the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Assembly which met in the 1640s and uh, developed the Westminster Standards, Confession, Catechism, and some other great English documents that we appreciate and love. When Charles II comes back uh, from exile in the Netherlands, his father having been executed by the Puritans, or by the parliamentarians at least, who are associated with the Puritans, Charles II immediately issues a new act of uniformity, which essentially makes it illegal to be a Puritan, Everybody in the church has to go back to the Book of Common Prayer and back to the Anglican ways that predated the period of Puritan ascendancy. And uh, so we have in 1662 then, with the passing of this Act of Uniformity, what is known as the Great Ejection, when some 2,400 Puritan pastors are kicked out of their churches that's the period of time in which John Bunyan is arrested and imprisoned and he writes Pilgrim's Progress and other Puritan pastors are also arrested for preaching illegally. They become known as dissenters, they become known as nonconformists because they are unwilling to submit to the acts of uniformity and the act of conformity and this persecution lasts until 1688 1689, the glorious revolution of William and Mary. Okay, so those are the things we were discussing before the Shepherds Conference, and hopefully all of that sounds familiar to you, uh, even though we went over it now in just a very quick survey fashion. Where we actually left off was all the way at the end of this PowerPoint, talking about some of the Puritans themselves. And in the notes, I think I've got about 60 different Puritans that are kind of outlined there for you. Here in the PowerPoint, there's just five. And we did talk a little bit about Richard Baxter just at the end of class on a week ago Thursday. But I just wanted to pick up with Baxter again and walk through sort of these five Puritans that you should know. Um, we really we really owe a lot to the Puritans. And the word Puritan, of course, has something of a negative connotation to it because, especially in the New England area, um, people post the Puritan age have tended to view the Puritans in a somewhat negative, almost legalistic um, light. But, uh, but really, when we think of the Puritans, we should, we should see them as our 
spiritual forefathers. I mean, we were talking about spiritual heritage even this morning. You all did your spiritual heritage timeline. For some of you, it did go through like congregationalists, Puritans. For others of you, it may have taken a different path back to the Reformation. But in the English-speaking world, the Puritans really represent for us the link between the Reformation in the 1500s and the First Great Awakening, what in England was called the Evangelical Revival in the 1700s. How do we get from really the greatest revival in all of Western history, the Reformation, to then one of the subsequent great revivals in the First Great Awakening? What connects those two in the English-speaking world? It is the Puritans. And, uh, you know, there might be some things that we would quibble about with some of the Puritans. At times we might say that they were a bit verbose in the way that they articulated things. They were certainly meticulous and very detail-oriented. You read some of the Puritans and it's like main point, sub-point, 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 and then there's 15 sub-points under that 10th sub-point, and you're going, wow, these guys left no leaf unturned, literally. Uh, but the reality is that these are the conservative Christians in England for 150 years. They are the conservative evangelicals. They are the evangelical church within the broader Anglican Protestant Church of England for 150 years. And whatever our minor disagreements might be with certain Puritans, we, we owe the Puritan movement a great, really a great debt of gratitude for the preservation of those Reformation convictions that flowed out of the Reformation of the 16th century and ignited the revival of the First Great Awakening in the 18th century. So, just a few names. Richard Baxter, these are in alphabetical order, they're of last name, they're not in any um, sort of other order. Uh, Richard Baxter, of course, is a well-known name. His work, The Reformed Pastor, is one that you read here in seminary. And as I mentioned, even in our last class period, you can appreciate, I think, the importance of a book called The Reformed Pastor when we think about the state of the Anglican church in the mid to late 1600s, which was a church that had completely abandoned the Reformation had completely abandoned personal reformation, which is really what Baxter is writing about, and it also abandoned those reformation convictions. Even reformation theology had largely been replaced with a commitment to Arminianism. So here Baxter is writing a book in, at a time in which you have many professional clergy members within the Anglican Church. They choose that path because it's a good and stable career, but not because they're truly redeemed. And so he writes this book to confront those who would really practice a hypocritical form of pastoral ministry. We mentioned also that he wrote The Saints' Everlasting Rest, which is one of the greatest books in church history on the topic of heaven, and one that I would highly recommend to you for your people in terms of giving them hope for the life to come. All right, we read already from the Reformed pastor, uh, the last time we were together, and we also read from the Saints' Everlasting Rest. In fact, I think this was the slide that we ended class with when we were together last time. So we'll skip over those. But powerful, powerful insights from a man who was gripped with God's truth and wanted to see that truth lived out consistently in pastoral ministry and wanted, of course, the hope of heaven to be a guiding 
fixation in his heart and life. Let's talk then a little bit about John Bunyan. Oh, I think we did get to John Bunyan, didn't we, last time? So, uh, Bunyan, of course, wrote the second most influential Christian book that's ever been written in English, and that would be Pilgrim's Progress behind only the King James, well, I suppose we could just say behind the English Bible, the English Bible, the most prolific and influential translation of which has been the King James Version. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress has been the second most influential and beloved book written in church history in English. As an unsaved man, of course, we talked about this, but Bunyan fought in the English Civil War. So you can see how his lifespan measures up with the timeline that we've already discussed. He witnessed the death of a man who was a, who volunteered to go in his place because he couldn't fight in the battle for some reason. Someone volunteered to take his place. That man was killed. And Bunyan always felt as though Really, he was living on borrowed time after that. That was part of the catalyst that God used to bring Bunyan to saving faith. And I think I mentioned this as well, and we'll see this especially with Jonathan Edwards, but in typical Puritan fashion, Bunyan struggled with the idea of following Christ for a period of several years. Assurance of salvation, all of those things, and then finally emerged on the other side of that struggle, completely convinced that God had transformed him, and he looked back on that entire process as his conversion. So the Puritan idea of conversion is a process that often requires years of time as the soul struggles with the implications of the gospel and comes to fully embrace that gospel. It's pretty much the complete opposite of the decisionistic one time I prayed a prayer, I signed a card, I walked an aisle approach that is so popular in the crusade-driven evangelistic approach, mass evangelistic approach of modern evangelicalism. We'll talk a little bit more about that a little later. Yes? Just a quick aside, because you mentioned that before, that that's kind of the Puritan belief and as they work through salvation that it's more of a longer process. Is there a book that stands out to you that any of them wrote that really crystallizes that, that really captures that thought? Well, you see it a lot in the personal testimonies of these individuals. So in terms of books that, that at least give the experiential part of that process, Bunyan in his personal auto, in his autobiography, his personal testimony, he talks about that struggle. Jonathan Edwards talks about that struggle. Uh, you see it also, um, the book that comes to mind is, uh, I believe his name is Henry Skugel, The Life of, uh, is it The Life of God and the Soul of Man, I think it is. It was the book that God used to convert George Whitfield. As Whitfield read that book, um, he came to understand the conversion process. So th that's the book that immediately jumped into my head when you said that. Um, there probably have been some studies that have been done on the Puritan theology of conversion. Maybe even the new Puritan theology by Joel Beakey addresses that. I have it sitting on my desk, but I haven't looked up that particular topic yet because it just, you know, just came out. Um, but that might be a place to, to look. 
All right, we read a little bit from Pilgrim's Progress already. So we'll skip over that. Of course, Pilgrim's Progress, as you all know, is an allegory of the Christian life. And um, uh, something that has resonated, maybe that's the best way to say it, a book that has really resonated with believers ever since. And something that Bunyan wrote much of while he was imprisoned for those 12 years during that period after 1662, after the Great Ejection, when we have the dissenters and the nonconformists. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Matthew Henry, another well-known name from the Puritan era. Matthew Henry was actually born after the Restoration. The word Restoration refers to the restoration of the English crown, the English monarchy. So you have Charles II coming back in 1660 after the 10-year, really, dictatorship of Oliver Cromwell. And uh, so this is the restoration of the monarchy. Uh, maybe the protectorate of Oliver Cromwell would be a better way to say that. Henry grew up in a nonconformist family. His father was a nonconformist minister. And as a result, Henry grew up experiencing the persecution and harassment that Puritans experienced during this period of time. So Puritanism was very unpopular during the 1660s, 70s, and 80s. He became a pastor, a, priest, a preacher in Chester and then in London. And I've included Henry in this list of the five Puritans you should know because of his very well-known exposition of the Old and New Testaments, or what we commonly call Matthew Henry's commentaries. He put those together from 1704 to 1714, so this is um, early 18th century now. Quintessentially Puritan commentary focused on biblical spirituality and the need to glorify God in the whole of life. And, <clears throat> you know, one of the things you see with some of these historical commentaries, Calvin's commentary comes to mind as well, is, um, and it's the same perspective that's reflected in John MacArthur's commentary set. When a commentary gets really sidetracked with dealing with all of the skeptics and all of the prevailing theories of the day in which it's written, it automatically dates itself and becomes somewhat unuseful 100, 200 years later. But when a commentary sticks with just explaining the text, that commentary becomes timeless. And I know MacArthur talks a lot about having a timeless ministry. Preach the text so you have a timeless ministry. A timeless ministry, not just when I preached it in the 1990s or in 2013, but a timeless ministry that will stand the tests of time for generations to come if the Lord tarries. We see that with Calvin, we see it with Matthew Henry, we see it with others in church history. Here's a short section from his exposition on Romans, and this is great stuff. It's a commentary, but it, it reads almost like a sermon, and you could preach, you could preach this. He says, the apostle here begins, there's a Typo. The, the apostle here begins with one signal privilege of true Christians and describes the character of those to whom it belongs. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 This is his triumph after that melancholy complaint and conflict in the foregoing chapter. 
Sin remaining, disturbing, vexing, but blessed be God, not ruining. The complaint he takes to himself, but humbly transfers the comfort with himself to all true believers who are interested in it. It is the unspeakable privilege and comfort of all those that are in Christ Jesus that there is therefore now no condemnation to them. He does not say there is no accusation against them, for this there is, but the accusation is thrown out and the indictment quashed. He does not say there is nothing in them that deserves condemnation, for this there is, and they see it and own it and mourn over it and condemn themselves for it, but it shall not be their ruin. He does not say there is no cross, no affliction to them, or no displeasure in the affliction, for this there may be, but no condemnation. They may be chastened of the Lord, but not condemned with the world. Now this arises from their being in Christ Jesus by virtue of their union with Him. Through faith they are thus secured. They are in Christ as in their city of refuge and so are protected from the avenger of blood. He is their advocate and He brings them off. There is therefore no condemnation because they are interested in the satisfaction that Christ by dying made to the law. In Christ, God does not only not condemn them but is well pleased with them. That's great exposition. And the fact that it is over 300 years old is it's timeless. Maybe we could update a few of the words, but for the most part, you could preach that very paragraph in your church and people would think you were profound. You could tell them, well, it's a Puritan. All right, let's talk a little bit about John Owen. <clears throat> John Owen is, he's been called the Prince of the English Puritans. He is perhaps the great scholar. He's widely recognized as the great, perhaps the greatest scholar of Puritanism. It's interesting that he and John Bunyan were good friends. John Bunyan was an uneducated tinker. Um, I mean, he was educated to a certain degree, but he wasn't educated to the highest and fullest degree of university seminary training like John Owen was. He was largely an uneducated tinker, and yet John Bunyan and John Owen were great friends, great contrasts. Bunyan was sort of the Puritan of the people, I suppose, writing a book that everyone could relate to. John Owen was the Puritan to the scholars, writing literature that takes a little time to stop and think about. And if you've ever read any of John Owen's works, you understand what I'm talking about. You kind of like Stephen Charnock a little bit, you have to stop and kind of pause after every sentence, make sure you're still on track before you continue. Owen actually served as the chaplain for Oliver Cromwell. During Cromwell's rule, he was often consulted by the Lord Protector. He was made a Dean and Chancellor at Oxford University. Now after the restoration, after Charles II was restored to the throne, Owen was never imprisoned, but he lived like something of a fugitive pastor there in London. He, as I mentioned, was a friend of John Bunyan, loved listening to Bunyan preach, and during Bunyan's imprisonment, Owen often sought his release he wrote numerous theological and practical works with lasting influence to today. So let's read just a little bit of John Owen. This is on the doctrine of justification by faith. And here Owen is noting the relationship between faith and obedience. And you'll see that uh, we've gotten to a little bit 
higher level here. The faith whereby we are justified is such as is not found in any but those who are made partakers of the Holy Ghost and by him united unto Christ, whose nature is renewed and in whom there is a principle of all grace and purpose of obedience. So in other words, true believers are justified and those who are truly justified will want to obey. Only we say it is not any other grace as charity and the like, nor any obedience that gives life and form unto this faith, but it is this faith that gives life and efficacy unto all other graces and form unto all evangelical obedience. In other words, unlike the Catholics, we don't say that obedience leads to saving faith. We say rather that saving faith leads to obedience. Neither does anything hence accrue unto our adversaries who would have all those graces which are in their root and principle at least present in all that are to be justified to have the same influence unto our justification as faith has. In other words, the Catholics teach a synergistic role for works plus faith. We teach a monergistic role of faith alone. Or that we are said to be justified by faith alone, and in explication of it, in answer unto the reproaches of the Romanists, do we say that we are justified by faith alone, but not by that faith which is alone, that we intend by faith all other graces and obedience also. So saving faith, we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by a transformed life. For besides that, the nature of no other grace is capable of that office which is assigned unto faith in our justification, nor can be assumed into a society in operation with it, namely to receive Christ and the promises of life by him and to give glory unto God on their account. So when they can give us any testimony of Scripture assigning our justification unto any other grace or all graces together or all the fruits of them, so as it is assigned unto faith, they shall be attended unto." What he's saying there is until the Roman Catholics can show us from the Bible that salvation is by something other than faith alone, we're not going to listen to them. Okay, But you can see how you kind of have to stop. Okay, what was that? And then stop. Um, it's not a lack of ability to communicate on Owen's part. It is that we are, to quote from a well-known movie, we are but ropes hanging from the Goodyear blimp trying to hold on. All right, so... Anyway, it just takes a little bit more work, and that's because Owen was operating at such a high intellectual level. That's my point. Yes? I've really learned a lot from John Owen, but I have trouble understanding him. But what I found is there's some, some people who've written commentaries on what he wrote mm -hmm. that has been really helpful. And, yeah. uh, and at the one uh, In My Place Condemned He Stood mm -hmm. by J.R. Packer and Mark Dever. I thought that was a really great book and it helped me to understand him and I really learned so much out of it. Absolutely. And for those who are willing to make the investment into Owen's writings, it is well worth the investment because there are some very, very um, profound and um, important nuggets of truth that are there that he articulates in a way that no one else is really able to do. So, um, yeah. I'm, I'm not downplaying John Owen. I'm just noting the, the contrast be someone, be, between someone like Owen and someone like Bunyan in terms of even the intended audience for which they were writing. No, I don't think you're downplaying. I, I just mention that because um, if there's other guys here who find him hard, I was just wanting to recommend reading someone explaining Owen. Sure. I found much more easier to do and really helpful. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, his stuff on the mortification of sin, on the um, the death of death, which is a Puritan work on limited atonement, if you're interested in that. Um, there's a number of great works from John Owen that, you know, people who love the Puritans quickly fall in love with the writings of John Owen. All right, Thomas Watson. <clears throat> Watson was well-versed in the biblical languages, including Hebrew, which was not altogether, um, which was a little less common at that time. He was imprisoned in 1651. This is actually during Oliver Cromwell's, the beginning of Oliver Cromwell's reign. Thomas Watson is put in prison. You think, well, why is, why is the Puritan parliamentarian government imprisoning a Puritan pastor like Thomas Watson, it's because not all of the Puritans were convinced that Oliver Cromwell should become the Lord Protector of England. There were a number of Puritans even in England, along with pretty much the majority of Presbyterians in Scotland, who wanted Charles II to immediately assume the throne after his father, Charles I, was executed. And uh, Christopher Love some of you may have heard that name. He wrote a moving letter to his wife right before he was killed, actually. Um, Christopher Love and some others were involved in a plot to try and put Charles II back on the throne in 1651 and not have Oliver Cromwell reign. And uh, so you, you see that there's some complexity when we talk about the Puritans. They didn't all share the exact same outlook on life. In spite of his involvement in trying to restore Charles II back in the 1650s, a decade later he was ejected with all the other um, Puritans in the Great Ejection after the Act of Uniformity was passed. And so he ministered as a dissenter and a nonconformist in various places <clears throat> all the way up until the 1680s, and then he died in 1686. He's considered one of the most articulate and readable of all the Puritans, and all of his works have been reprinted, and you're, many of you are familiar with Thomas Watson. So let's read just a little bit from Thomas Watson. This is from the godly man's picture on the fact that a truly godly man loves the Word of God. Let us test by this characteristic whether we are godly. And when he says godly, he means saved. Okay, so that's, that's the Puritan way of saying saved. We use the word godly to refer to people who we know are saved, who are then exhibiting spiritual maturity in their life. But Watson is using the term godly just as a way of saying saved. How do we know whether we're saved? Are we lovers of the word? Do we love the word written? What sums of money the martyrs gave for a few pages of the Bible? Do we make the word our bosom friend, as Moses often had the rod of God in his hand, so we should have the book of God in ours? When we want direction, do we consult the sacred oracle? When we find corruption strong, do we make use of the sword of the Spirit to hew them down? When we are disconsolate, do we go to this bottle of the water of life for comfort? Then we are lovers of the word. But alas, how can they who are seldom conversant with the scriptures say that they love them? Their eyes begin to be sore when they look at a Bible. The two testaments are hung up like rusty armor, which is seldom or never made use of. The Lord wrote the law with his own finger. But though God took pains to write, men will not take pains to read. They would rather look at a deck of cards than at a Bible. Second, do we love the word preached? 
Do we prize it in our judgments? Do we receive it into our hearts? Do we fear the loss of the word preached more than the loss of peace and trade? It is the removal of the ark that troubles us. Again, do we attend to the word with reverential devotion? When the judge is giving his charge from the bench, all attend. When the word is preached, the great God is giving us his charge. Do we listen to it as to a matter of life and death? This is a good sign that we love the word. Again, do we love the holiness of the word? The word is preached to beat down sin and advance holiness. Do we love it for its spirituality and purity? Many love the word preached only for its eloquence and notion. They come to a sermon as to a performance or as to a garden to pick flowers, but not to have their lusts subdued or their hearts bettered. These are like a foolish woman who paints her face but neglects her health. So there you go. There's a little uh, <coughs> taste of Thomas Watson. And, uh, you know, one of the things that stands out to me as we even read that short little section is his use of word pictures. And that's something that you often see in Puritan literature. Jonathan Edwards is another master of using word pictures to provide short little illustrations and windows into the things that he was teaching. All right, that brings us then to the end of our discussion of the Puritans. Now, we still have 15 minutes left in class, and we are going to make use of that time, so we're not completely done yet. We will also still really discuss the Puritans when we talk about the Great Awakening, because Jonathan Edwards is still a Puritan, a Puritan in New England, and the Puritan movement, in some ways, almost reverberates more strongly and a little bit longer in New England than it did in Old England. By the early 1700s, Puritanism was really starting to be eclipsed in England. And uh, we see some of that in New England as well. There's a reason that we need to have a Great Awakening because there's been something of a spiritual apathy and darkness that has begun to set in even among the descendants of the Puritans. So we'll get to all of that. But in terms of looking at the Puritans as a unit, um, it's helpful for us to understand who these individuals were and the way that God used them. All right, I want to pick up in the class notes just for a little bit. This is on page 154 of the class notes. There's actually a PowerPoint that I have that goes with these notes, but it's not quite as detailed, so I want to use the class notes for this part of the lecture. I want to continue to connect the dots here from the Reformation in the 16th century to the First Great Awakening in the 18th century. We've seen that chain connected in terms of the Puritans with English-speaking Protestant Christianity. But what about the rest of Europe? What is going on in Lutheran circles, in the German-speaking part of the world, and in the Reformed speaking part of the world among the French and the Dutch Reformed. Um, what's happening in that part of the world? Uh, you can see from the map that I have here, and let me just increase the zoom on this a little bit to make it easier to see, but you can see from the map here sort of where all of these different groups uh, really thrive after the Reformation. So we have in really southern Europe, still Roman Catholicism represented, and so in Spain, and then really in France. France remains uh, Catholic, even though there's a large Protestant presence there. The Huguenots, we'll talk about them more in a moment. Italy, of course, remains Catholic. Austria remains Catholic. And so you have sort of southern Europe remaining Roman Catholic. 
Then in Switzerland, we have the Swiss Reformed, and in the Netherlands, the Dutch Reformed, and in France, the French Huguenots, which would be the French Reformed, who are severely persecuted by the, anti-Catholic, uh, by the Catholic anti-Protestant government there. The Lutherans, you can see there in Germany, and then up into places around the Baltic Sea. The Anabaptists are sort of mixed throughout, and then on the British Isles we have the Presbyterians in Scotland, and we have the Anglicans and Puritans in England. So just sort of a graphical, geographical representation of where these different groups were during this period of time. So let's talk a little bit about what happened in Lutheranism after Martin Luther died. Luther died in 1546, and uh, so... Philip Melanchthon dies in 1560. 1560, of course, is right after the Marian uh, persecution, which ended in the late 1550s with Elizabeth coming to the throne. So I'm just trying to connect these different timelines for you. Lutheranism strongest in Germany and Scandinavia. And uh, after Luther's death, there were a number of different schismatic factions within Lutheranism that threatened to really splinter the entire Lutheran movement into multiple sub-branches of Lutheranism. But all of that ended in 1580. On the 50th anniversary of the Diet of Augsburg in 1530, when Charles V had Melanchthon come and he presented the Augsburg Confession and Lutheranism was then recognized as a legitimate movement within the Holy Roman Empire. On the 50th anniversary of that, there was the Book of Concord that was published in which Jacob Andrea, who's listed there, and Martin Chemnitz, a name we've mentioned before in this class, brought together the writings of Luther, the writings of Melanchthon, and uh, really almost created 10 creedal statements that have defined Lutheranism ever since. And it's called Concord, the Book of Concord, because it was the book that brought all of these different Lutheran factions together and created really one stream of Lutheranism. Also included some of the ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, bringing Lutheranism back in... um, or setting, um, setting down as a record the historical commitments that characterized Lutheranism. From 1580 to 1689, and 1689-1688, that's where the end of our Puritan lecture went as well with the glorious revolution there in England of William and Mary. So same period of time now. Uh, we have more or less the development of what is called Lutheran Orthodoxy, which is the systemization of Lutheran doctrine. And you have to remember, again, all the churches are nationalized. So there's a national Lutheran church in parts of Germany, parts of Prussia, parts of Scandinavia. This Lutheran church um, becomes known for the things that it believes intellectually But there's always a disconnect or a question of whether or not what the church adheres to doctrinally is really affecting the lives of the people who believe those creeds. It becomes creedal, and uh, it becomes really characterized by what we might say here, spiritual and theological lethargy or dead orthodoxy. 
that dead orthodoxy creates a reaction, and that reaction is known as pietism. And you read about pietism in Olson's green book, The Story of Christian Theology. Pietism was a movement that emphasized really application. I think it would be the best way to say it. It emphasized holy living. And uh, it also emphasized, of course, the, the heartfelt desires behind holy living. But in contrast to a Christianity that consisted of nothing more than adhering intellectually to a set of creedal beliefs, pietism said, no, this needs to make a difference in how we live. It needs to actually show up in a transformed life. So in many ways, pietism is a good reaction to the dead orthodoxy of what Lutheranism eventually develops into. Now, in some cases, the pendulum swings too far. You have some pietists who overemphasize, perhaps, just the external obedience, and they underemphasize doctrine. We understand that there has to be a balance between doctrine and life. And the pietists sometimes undervalued doctrine too much. There were also some pietists who took the, swung the pendulum too far into mysticism. And even Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who we'll talk about a little bit more, was one of those who sort of allowed his pietism to become mystical. And I think there's a lot of dangers in that. But on the whole, pietism, German pietism, Lutheran pietism, represents a corrective to this dead orthodoxy that had been allowed to develop in the state churches there in the Lutheran parts of Prussia. The first major pietist was a man named Philip Jacob Spainer. That's a name that you'll need to know for exam number two. It's a name that showed up in the reading that you already did in Olson. He has been labeled the father of pietism, and he wrote a book called The Pia Desideria, Pious Desires, which was actually a long introduction to another book by an earlier German theologian named Johann Arndt. Spainer and his successor, August Hermann Frank, uh, essentially are considered the two major architects of pietism. They eventually will influence Zinzendorf, and Zinzendorf himself will become a leader among the Moravians. The Moravians is a group that traces its heritage back to John Huss. And the Moravians will become important because they're the catalyst that God uses to convert John Wesley to true saving faith. So there's some connections that are taking place here. Again, the, the purpose of these details, I know it's a lot of details, but the purpose is to explain how we get from the Reformation to the Great Awakening. Pietism stressed the necessity of good works and a holy life, and it, it put an emphasis on the following, really, five things. Lay Bible study, and of course, we still, you can see the pietist influence even in contemporary evangelicalism because we put a lot of emphasis on lay Bible study. Certainly a major emphasis on prayer, an emphasis on holy living, an emphasis on the avoidance of controversy, in particular an avoidance of any doctrinal controversy. And here's maybe an area where we would disagree with the pietists, but because they're swinging the pendulum so far from doctrinal orthodoxy, doctrinal orthodoxy, doctrinal orthodoxy to the other side, they downplay doctrinal orthodoxy as not really being that important. 
So they tend to be a little bit more ecumenical. And uh, then more fervent preaching. So many of those are good and uh, <clears throat> very noble emphases that the pietists are emphasizing during this time. Now, five minutes left. I just want to introduce a concept that we're going to talk about more on Thursday. Uh, during this period of time, during this really 150 years, which is running parallel to the Puritan period that we've talked about, there's two things that take place. One is a major military battle between the Lutherans and the Catholics called the Thirty Years' War. It was one of the most brutal and bloody military conflicts in all of European history prior to World War One, And... Um, <clears throat> It's not something that we're going to talk a lot about, but just something you need to know about in terms of the ongoing conflict that's taking place during this time. Protestants are still fighting, literally, for the things that they believe in. But from a philosophical perspective, something that's more important and something that we still are experiencing the ramifications of today is the birth of the Age of Enlightenment. And... Uh, <clears throat> It's it really the Enlightenment leads then to modernism and from modernism to postmodernism. But the, the birth of the modern era from a secular, non-Christian perspective really begins, I suppose we could say it begins with the Renaissance to a certain extent, but the Renaissance leads into the Age of Enlightenment. And there is a huge shift <clears throat> that takes place in the way that people think about the world as a result of the Enlightenment. Up to this point in European Western church history, or history in general, people have thought about the world in terms of, really in terms of revelation, <coughs> excuse me, in terms of biblical revelation and church tradition. When you think of the authority structures that govern the way in which people view the world, worldview authorities. It has been biblical authority and it has been church authority. Now the Reformation is going to say biblical authority trumps church authority and that's the, the revolutionary concept of the Reformation and the Reformers were absolutely right in that conviction. But with the Age of Enlightenment we're going to have now a complete shift in the way people think about the world. No longer are they going to allow their thinking to be governed by biblical authority or by church tradition, what we might label as revelation from God, instead they are going to allow their worldview to be governed by <clears throat> now two things, reason, human reason, and science. And reason and science now will become the, the new authority for how we view the world. And uh, <clears throat> there's a number of important individuals who are involved in this process. Rene Descartes, around 1650, uh, 1637, writes his book, A Discourse on the Method, which emphasizes human reason as the way in which we should think about the world around us. The idea of, I think, therefore I am. Not, God created me, therefore I am, but I think, therefore I am, is sort of the slogan of this rationalistic approach to reality. Then we're going to have Sir Francis Bacon, who um, 
develops what's known as the empirical method, empiricism. John Locke, who's going to take that empirical method and champion it and start to say that science is the way that we should think about the world, that the world is not about supernatural, extra, um, uh, supernatural realities that are beyond this life, um, but that rather the way that we think about reality is governed by what we can see and what we can touch and uh, what we can observe in the world around us. Naturalism then replaces supernaturalism. So all of this is taking place now in the 17th century as a result of the Enlightenment. Biblical authority, church authority is being completely replaced with science and human reason as the new way in which we think about reality. That is going to have massive implications for the church, and it's still the way that most people in Western society operate today. In postmodernism, of course, there's been some adjustment to that, but it's still the same basic authority structures. Science and human reason are the authority, and scripture and church tradition are no longer regarded as authoritative at all. Okay? So we'll pick up there on Thursday, uh, and I'll reiterate some of these things about the Enlightenment because arguably, outside of the Reformation, the most important thing that happens in this 500-year period of time is the Enlightenment, whereas the Reformation is a change from bad to good, the Enlightenment is a change from, well, it's, for many of these thinkers, it was a change from bad to worse, but it's a change from the good to the bad.